0: Successful uniform programs target what's best for the end user, i.e., that employee who has to wear the garment, because we always have to remember, this is an item that the employee has to wear, not something that they choose to wear. The Uniformer. Insights and interviews into the people and companies that drive the markets for uniforms, image apparel, and public safety equipment. The Uniformer is a production of the Network Association of Uniform Manufacturers and Distributors, the NAUMD.
1: Hello. Welcome to The Uniformer. I'm Rick Levine from the NAUMD, thrilled to be sitting here today with a uh, longtime uh, colleague, friend, um, James Bottoms, who is, um, James is, is currently uh, uh, the EVP of strategy and international business development for Logistic Unicorp, um, but uh, we'll get into all of that. Welcome
0: to The Uniformer, James. Well, thank you very much. It's certainly an honor and a pleasure to be here with you, Rick.
1: You know, James, you, you and I have known each other now for uh, multiple roles in the professional life of of James Bottoms, but um, and they've all been interesting and uh, impressive. But currently, as this EVP of Strategy and in International Business, um, what is it you do? What does that title mean? What do you do all day throughout the year?
0: <laughs> well, what's it- Interesting about Logistic Unicor is very few people understand exactly how global of an organization we are. So we have operations in a number of different countries across a number of different continents. Um, We are obviously based in Quebec here in Canada and with our recent acquisition of Martin Levesque have uh, people in various provinces across Canada But as well, we have a very large operation in Australia, where we outfit the um, Australian Defense Force. We also have a large operation in New Zealand, where we outfit the New Zealand Defense Force. We have operations in Germany, where uh, they uh, work with the German government, the French government, the Austrian government. Uh, We have uh, factories in Tunisia and uh, soon to be opening uh, factories in Togo. And then our long standing factory in Vietnam as well. So a lot of my role is really focused on bringing the best of all of those worlds together from a strategic standpoint so that we can tell our story to the world better about all of our strengths in the various locations around the world. And certainly then on the business development side to take that story to uh, current customers just so that they have an understanding as to how we can possibly grow our business with them, but also to new opportunities so that they understand our vast resource and the stability and security of our supply chain. Wow, that is a thorough
1: answer. I uh, And there's, there's a lot that... Uh, You're right. I did not realize the reach of logistic. What is interesting to me also about that is in the United States, the the government, I don't even remember the year, passed an amendment called the Berry Amendment, B-E-R-R-Y. And the Berry Amendment states that for our armed forces, you have to source domestically, um, the thinking is that the the armed forces didn't really want a potential adversary uh, to, or for us to be, at a time of crisis or war, to be dependent on, you know, uh, a foreign entity of any sort. Uh, for our supplies for the armed forces so it's really interesting and i know that there are some us brands fetchheimer and others that supply military th- you know throughout the the planet as well so how does that happen so new zealand you know i don't even remember when the last time new zealand was involved in an armed conflict but is new zealand is not concerned that a supply you know uh, chain uh, of foreign origin is included within their armed forces
0: so well, let's talk about that. So uh, Canada has a similar rule of thumb uh, in terms of uh, outfitting our armed forces. The goods from the fabric up are manufactured here in Canada. Uh, so that includes footwear, um, that includes our, our combat apparel and our dress apparel. There's uh, some allowances for certain goods to be made abroad, but that's few and far between. As well in Australia, we have a factory in Australia and we work very closely with mills that uh, fabric mills in Australia to make the fabric that is used for the Australian Defense Forces. And we have a factory there that manufactures a lot of those goods. Um, And for New Zealand, the close relationship between Australia and New Zealand allows New Zealand to piggyback off of a lot of the goods that are coming out of Australia and are used for the uh, Australian Defense Force.
1: That makes sense. So really, uh, you could argue that since the factories are uh, within the borders of that uh, foreign land that that, you know, uh, uh, is somewhat compliant, if you will. And that makes total sense, you know. It's
0: not just the sew factories, it's the raw materials uh, in a lot of ways, particularly in the fabric. So, you know, the Australian uh, fabric um, industry down there is actually fairly robust. You know, to that end, we actually have a Fire Authority in Australia, which they recently went to a made in Australia uh, component as well using a variety of fabrics uh, and as well as the cut and sew there in Australia. And, you know, the uh, cut and sew market and the textile market in Canada is robust as well. So, you know, heavily supported by the defense industry, but they're making fabrics that are used in a lot of other applications outside of just yeah,
1: military. Of course. I would think they, well, no, they don't have to, they could be getting enough <laughs> business just from one, but it would be more typical of a mill to seek out alternate uses. I mean, if you're making an FR uh, fabric or you're making a, you know, uh, an aramid of some kind, then you're, you know, you're likely looking for multiple Outlets to to sell yardage. I'm sure. So there's this variety uh, that we're discussing of you know of of sourcing, if you will. And has that you know I'm sure that's been an ultimate challenge over the past year, as literally supply chains are breaking down. On the flip side, I'm predicting an answer of yeah, but we have facilities in country for. Uh, many of our needs, so we're a little more protected. Uh, that not everything has to be on a container floating around the world. But you mentioned a few other places where you're manufacturing, Vietnam and and others. Um, so how's the supply chain squeeze uh, going these days? When can we uh, anticipate relief? Well,
0: wow, if uh, if I had the answer to that question, I think I'd be uh, you know maybe teaching at Harvard uh, because it is a very challenging conundrum uh that we're facing so you know i there are the needs to diversify certainly you know within canada so canada is the second largest country by land mass in the world after russia Uh, and so we are very spread out um if people forget how far north we go right so we say here in canada from sea to sea <laughs> to sea um, Like in the united states you go from you know sea to sea or sea to sea to sea so in that area we have a lot of people and we have uh, a lot of expertise so certainly recently uh, uh, my role is being based in toronto ontario which is the province just west of quebec And with that is opening up logistic to more markets, or I should say, not only more markets, but also to more of a supply chain, and helping them to diversify. Um, We also have a number of initiatives going on with uh, locations in and other provinces across Canada. So certainly the need to diversify our our supply chain within Canada has been pressing and has been quite successful for us uh, over the last year to year and a half. You know, COVID and the demands that it took of our supply chain to produce medical protective gowns and products. So there was definitely a pivot away from our core product there. Uh, but bringing that back to focus as well but that also opened us up to a whole lot of new factories so you know our factory in Vietnam which is you know very efficient and does uh, you know their focus is a lot on our smaller runs and you um, areas where we're doing fewer pieces as opposed to you know having to do you know several thousand at a time they can do some smaller runs there you know they've been able to remain very efficient we're very fortunate the team there uh really loves working there so even throughout covid and then after the Tet, or some people refer to as lunar new year look you know had a uh, very, very high percentage of employees who came back to us. So the consistency there has been good. Just the challenge is working with the freight companies, right? I, I am not a ocean transport expert um, and I can only imagine the complexities of having to figure out where all the containers go because you know the challenge with that business is once things get out of balance, um, it's tough to get it back. And what I, what I explain to people, in, in, at least in the textile industry as I'm experiencing it, is it's not a supply chain bottleneck on the manufacturing side. Like the factories were shut down for a short period of time and our raw material supplies were, were shortened for a short period of time. But that period of time was measured in, in my opinion, weeks, not months. And so things have really come back. To things never really got off normal in that market, but it was just the transportation to get those goods, because you know you're still very heavily dependent on China for fabrics and raw materials, and getting those goods from China to other countries where you may be cutting. So that's what took so long. And then getting the finished goods from the ultimate, you know, finished location to the to the customer market. That took a very, very long time. So, you know, diversification
1: is a triggering word for me because what's, what's interesting to me about James Bottoms uh, is that, you know, you've worked at a variety of companies, but they've also been so diverse in their product uh, mix so you 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 wor- you worked in outdoor you worked in headwear you worked most re- you had a recent run with a glove manufacturer serious glove manufacturer you've worked in women's apparel uh, and you know of course there's been uniforms of, of all kinds so you know it, it occurs to me that this this great experience you've been talking about, Uh, you know, in in dealing with these international things applies to kind of products as well. How do you think all of that experience has has maybe informed how you operate within the uniform industry?
0: You know, this goes back to the very first thoughts I had when I first entered into the uniform industry uh, 12 years ago. And having been in a branded world, so I worked for some leading outdoor brands, some leading, you know, as you said, clothing, you know, women's clothing brands, uh, equipment brands. And when I first came into the industry, it was, it's all about the brand. And it's not only the company brand, so whatever company you work for, logistic, but it's about the brand and the image of the customer. And whether that is in what we call in our industry image apparel. So, you know, whether it's McDonald's or Air Canada or Delta Airlines, Mm -hmm. where they have an image of brand, the same thing applies on the public safety side. You know, the police officers have a brand and they have an image. And it's very important that that image and brand be represented in what they wear and how they appear to their customer which in this case is the general public and so all of the great things that i learned about branding from uh my time at vf and my time at columbia sportswear and hardware was brought to play here because at least my first entry into the marketplace i found a lot of people really focused on the what and the how meaning, you know, what's the product they're going to wear, the shirt or the pant, you know, and how are we going to make it? How are we going to service it? So there's so much emphasis at NAUD in, in those conversations and with the executives that I joined at the time. And I was like, guys, I think we we've got it wrong here. It's the, the question you have to be asking for is the why. You know, why are they in the uniform? Why do they want to wear this? You know, and I have seen business lost over time because the customer's why changed, and we as a supplier didn't have a full understanding of that why. And then there was also a lot of business to be made and gained because the customer said, well... We need to change our image, and here's why. And therefore, we need to invest more and do this and do this. So I think that that why is so very important, in the uniform industry for a long time didn't deal with that effectively. I think things are, are changing from that. Um, the other thing that I found is – you know, similar to what you, you know, I said at the beginning about what does an EVP of strategy do? You know, a lot of my role is just to take the best of all the worlds and bring it together so that everybody can learn about that. And, and I'm fortunate to have had such a diverse background of having worked with some great leaders, uh, some great product, some great brands, and some great factories and suppliers uh, over my time that bringing that to, the uniform world was really key to say, well, this is how such and such brand does that. And I, like, I was funny. I can remember um, one of the first items I was looking at. I was at an NAUMD conference. I was looking at some jackets, uh, and some like outerwear jackets and stuff that were being made there. And you know, the technology and the seam taping uh, and, and stuff was in. Uh, I don't want to say it was considered best in class, but it was definitely one of the leading suppliers of of uh, outerwear. And I'm looking at this going, wow, like this technology is like seven, eight, nine years old. You know, the, the world has moved so far beyond this type of tape construction to, you know, an embedded or a welded construction and things. And so going back to um, my first stint in the image apparel industry. And there's another thing, emboss and deboss. I think, I I don't know if this is true, but I actually think one of the programs that we rolled out, we did a soft shell jacket for a customer and we did a a deboss logo on the chest. And as far as I could tell, certainly in Canada, I had never seen one and they were few and far between in the States of just saying, take a logo and deboss it. And that was like, well, it wasn't necessarily earth shattering, but it was it was big and that it was technology that had been in the branded world for some time, but I think people either felt that it was too expensive or not really applicable because it's workwear. It doesn't need to be fancy or it doesn't need to be cool. It's just it's workwear. And my whole approach was, well, the why is the customer wants to have a certain look and then there's this technology that we can certainly borrow from people that are spending a lot of money on research and innovation, and let's bring it into our. There's so much
1: in what you just said, James. And uh, okay, so here's a few things. One, if you don't have the good fortune to work on a team with James uh, and and hear mentorship statements such as why. Uh, I highly recommend Simon Sinek's book, which is seminal in this area, called "Start with Why." Um, I it changed my perception of just about everything in the world, <laughs> to be honest. When I read that book, I mean it's it's not new; it's a decade or you know fifteen years old at this point. And he, Simon, of course, has gone on to amazing things beyond that. But you, of course, reminded me again of the the foundational concepts of starting with why that you know we don't buy you know uh, uh apple product uh because it's superior yes it's superior in certain ways right but we buy it because apple has shown us a why right they've they've shown us that there's a yes. different way to think And we believe in that different way of thinking, and therefore our products express that. And and you're uh, mirroring that in a wonderful way for our industry, which many heretofore had thought of as a commodity product. Why? Because the customer typically treated us that way. And a customer typically would say, I don't care, just get me the shirt for 5 bucks instead of 15. That's all I care about, right? <laughs> so yeah. uh so we became this rather commodity-esque, you know, sleepy industry that, you know, oh yes, uniforms are out there, but there's nothing really, you know. But then people in the know, such as James Bottoms, you know, we know that um, fashion has has influenced heavily what happens in the uniform industry, but vice versa. There's so many things in the fashion space that were innovated because there was a need based on job function, or based on performance, or based on security, you know, or based on savings, on cost savings. You know, who knows where the invention comes from? But there's so much that we do as an industry that then gets you know, borrowed, copied into the fashion world. But I love that you're saying, hey, just as an example, you have this imprinted memory of looking at an outerwear jacket and going, wait, the people who make outerwear and redesign that outerwear twice a year or three times a year because of retail seasons have moved beyond this. So in our annuity yes. business, right? Our business is a new annuity. They're going to buy that product again and again and again until we screw something up and they have to go to a competitor. But uh, so a lot of times we're, we're lazy about innovation because, um, because it costs us time and money. Um, So I love that your approach is, well, but that's backwards, that we really need to um, continue to ask why, why are they wearing that? Why is it styled that way? Why is it that color? Um, I I, I love all of that. Um, Am I saying it back correctly? No, it's
0: it's It's absolutely correct. I think it's, you know, I think the why is both self-reflecting, meaning that, You know, we should, as business leaders, always be looking at ourselves to say, well, you know, why are we doing something this way? Or, you know, why have we always bought it from this, you know, supplier? Or, you know, why did we create this? But it's also, you know, business, passion, business, growth oriented by going out to customers going, well, you know, why do you do it that way? Most of my experience in the uniform industry has been in the direct sales side. And I know that there's a large part of our industry that's on the rental and care side. But you know, coming from the direct sales side, as a direct sale going into customers that are on the uh, rental side of the business and asking that, well, why? Why do you do it that way? And creating what we call the you know the, the total cost of ownership. So we sat down and generated a model that said, okay, you're paying for this pant today, and yes, you're laundering it, and over time, at the end of that life cycle of that pant, this becomes your total cost of that pant, versus in a direct sale model, you purchase it today, the employee gets the same life cycle out of that. And yes, it's you know a little bit more work on the employee side, but you know here's the total cost. So why would you do a laundry program versus a direct sale program? And, you know, maybe you win the business that way, maybe you don't, but it's constantly challenging the thought of, you know, why do we do that way? And if the opportunity is, you know, a hundred items, and at the end of the day, you as a direct sale person are able to convert Well, that's 30% more business. That's 30%, 30 items that you didn't have tomorrow, didn't have yesterday that you're going to have tomorrow. It
1: it makes total sense. And of course, you know, we're not bashing uh, rental. We know that there's...
0: Oh, it's not by any means because there are times, yeah, there are times where rental certainly makes sense. And, and, you know, and as good business leaders, you want to go to your customers to say, hey, I know you're really looking for a product that does X, Y, and Z, or Z, sorry, X, Y, Z, but you're probably better off to maybe go to a rental program because of the types of work environments that you're in, the types of you know products that you're carrying. It's probably not best to take that, bring that product home. So, you know, as a good business leader, you know you know when to offer what's best for the customer even though at times it may not be best for your particular business opportunity. Uh, I mean, maybe clients. this
1: feeds into a question I have for you, which is uh, that, that there's so much that has to be considered when managing a uniform program for a company uh, or for an agency or a, you know, a, a, an entity of, uh, of any sort. And, you know, since you're the rare breed that hasn't just sold them, but, you know, you've worked on the sourcing side, you know, the production flow, you know, costing better than the average person who might be um, uh, designing a program or or developing a program with a customer. So there's all of this information. So, you know, I mean, (laughs) without giving away, you, you know, totally the the trade secret, what's the secret sauce? What
0: makes a good uniform program? Successful uniform programs target what's best for the end user, i.e. that employee who has to wear the garment because we always have to remember that this is an item that the employee has to wear, not something that they choose to wear. And therefore, because they have to wear it, we've got to make sure all of our focus on what is best for that end user. Now, within that uniform companies that are successful partners to their customers are an extension of the marketing department. They are an extension of the human resource department. They are an extension of the finance department and they are an extension of the operations department. So we are an embedded partner within those companies and as a function of the marketing department, whether it's public sector, because again, image is image. So whether you are a uh, first responder or whether you are a you know restaurant worker or a bank worker or a hotel worker, you're a, an extension of that marketing, making sure that that end user appropriately reflects the image and the reputation and the values of that organization. From the HR component, you know what? We work with those end users and they are happy or not happy by the comfort and the function of the garment that they wear. And, you know, there are a number of times where uh, I have interacted with end users who have other concerns outside of the workplace or maybe concerns within the workplace that's impacting their opinion of how they look and their image of themselves in the uniform. And so you have to be a little bit of a psychologist, a little bit of an HR person to hear them out and discuss that and seek ways that they can properly express the image that the company wants to express while still being, you know, having the employee morale that they need to have to successfully do your job. Certainly on the finance side, you don't wanna be creating product that is throwaway. You need to create product that's mm-hmm. durable, that lasts, that at the same time balances with the fit and function requirements. Uh, and then you know, that's where it gets into the operation side so that the people have to be able to do their job. So in that context, we as, uh, as uniform suppliers, we can't think of our customer as being the buyer of a particular, uh, the, with, if you know the st- term strategic selling, the economic buyer uh, of the, of the products, so that person who's cutting the purchase orders. Yes, ultimately they make the decisions, but by making sure that you're working directly with the end user, whether they're unionized or not unionized, but working with those end users and their voice and incorporating that and then messaging that back. To the customer, i.e., the company or the entity that is selecting the uniform and saying, okay, this is what we're getting, this is the feedback that we're hearing. How can we balance the marketing side with the HR side, the finance side, with the operation side to come up with a new solution that makes um, everybody happy? Yeah, that's quite
1: challenging to take into account that many. Stakeholders, because you've got you know if a company has five thousand employees or twenty five thousand employees, then you potentially have quite a variety of opinions, um, and then you have quite an extensive set of of empathy state you know empathy um, feedback or empathic uh, feedback that you're just that you're describing where let's listen to what's going on in their world. It also occurs to me that you could have regional versions of the same statement. You could have, um, you know, uh, uh, by country, by city, by, you know, um, you know, the country mouse versus the city mouse opinion of what's going on, you know, but yeah. uh, th- so that, that's a lot of, of a feedback loop that's very challenging. And I agree with you that um, that is likely a really important ingredient to the success. We've both heard um, horror stories where certain things got ignored from the community that's actually wearing it and management, you know, was making certain decisions based on their assumptions. And uh, they were proven wrong, uh, either on the supplier side or at the, at the end user, uh, at the customer side. And, and design, you know, that, that reflects all of that is just, you know, uh, the ultimate challenge, of course, right? Because uh, maintaining... The one that struck with me that you said is maintaining that desire of the company to portray a certain image versus, you know, uh, my body type will not handle <laughs> that style that you're proposing. Yep. So, you know, how do you, you know, how do you deal with that when it comes up? Well,
0: I, I struggled with the word accommodating because accommodating has a bit of a, condescending nature to it but it is about you know hearing the people out hearing the the user out and ultimately there's a there's a well-known saying here in in Canada and I think it comes from a, a an indigenous leader but it's that you know the great spirit gave you two ears and one mouth so that you should listen twice as much as you speak and so a lot of times people just want to be heard and they want to listen. And at the end of the day, you know, they, they will they will come to an understanding. And you know, we can only do so much. We're not the employer, uh, but we can do is listen and, and to all um, in some cases be a mediator. I, I have found that in a lot in a lot of these cases in the in the in the uniform industry whether it's in the private sector or in the public sector we're often the mediator because we're a safe space for someone to express we know what's feasible within the potential guidelines and to be able to say okay well i hear you let me see about that or oh, i hear you. yeah that's entirely feasible we end up playing that role and you know and sharing that feedback and sometimes you just have to say no that's it from a safety standpoint or whatever this is a no-go but other times you can say yeah i think we can we can find an alternative there it's you know when you ask you know when people ask me a lot and not maybe you're going to ask me this question but people ask me a lot it's like you know why would you you know why would you want to go in the uniform industry like what is it and and having been on the branded side of the business so so it's interesting right if you're on the branded apparel sites so whether it's in gloves um or in coats or whatever you spend all this time designing and creating and making product, and then you invest in the inventory, and then it's your job to go out there and pitch it and sell it, right? So you've got this liability of this inventory that you have to move and you have to pitch and sell. And, and really, the uniform business, and I said this, it took me about six months to figure this out. When I came from a product company into this, I said, you know, the, this is a service industry that happens to make great products. Right. It's now we have in our industry, we have great brands and we have great suppliers who make great product, you know, Cobmex, for example. Right. They make great sweaters and they supply it. But I'll turn around and I tell, you know, Phil and John, I say, yeah, you're a product company and you're constantly innovating great stuff. But you're also a service company that happens to make great product because our role is if we don't do our job successfully, people don't earn a paycheck because they can't work. So our job is to service those end users and to service those customers to make sure that those employees are outfitted correctly so they can do their job and earn it. So we are a service company. And so with that, when people ask me, why would you want to do this? Because it's, it's the perfect combination of everything that you would want from in a company in the sense that you're hearing instant customer feedback, you're gaining that feedback, you're creating solutions, you're developing implementations of those solutions, and then you're delivering those solutions. So whether you are a customer service person who's receiving phone calls, or you're on the, the you know you're the tip of the spear receiving that feedback, where you have to at some point in time instantly solve a problem and say, hey, well, you know what? We've got Four varieties of that pant, you're in variety A, you don't like that here. I can offer you variety B. Or whether you're then to the account management side where people are going, well, we've got four varieties of pants and you know, two are selling great and the other two aren't selling great. How do we solve that problem? Can we go from four varieties to three varieties to the you know product creation team where you're trying to find you know a product that can both you know, keep you warm in the winter and cool you in the, you know, cool you in the summer, like the Yeti of a, you know, of a shirt. Uh, It keeps you warm and keeps you cool. Uh, You know, whatever you are, every single function in this industry is all about listening, thinking, solving, creating, and delivering. And I think a lot of other industries, if if you're in a branded world, your a lot of your job is you create and or you deliver or you execute yourself. And, and this industry gives you all those functions in one. Loving all of that. And
1: and yes, you know, you've predicted because you've probably listened to a few of these uniformer episodes. I always at the end say, Hey, would you recommend this to your children or you know, recent college graduates or you know, family members? And and that is such a fantastic answer that you gave that I love because. It, it, it also reminds me of my entrepreneurial spirit. And I've often said to people, you know, I'm much more interested in creating new things uh, and figuring out the first 10 things that have to get done when you're trying to do something new versus the rinse and repeat guy, right? Now, there are some who love the yeah. rinse and repeat. They thrive on that. They want to perfect how the rinse and repeat works and and then make sure it just works 100% of the time accurately and well. Uh, and that is great. I am love your answer because what you described is, hey, you've got an entrepreneurial happening every time you're going into a customer yeah. to discuss a program because we don't know ultimately what they want. Of course, we have stock items in our industry. Some call them blanks. We have blanks in our industry that are a product that hasn't been decorated yet. And yes, that a, a, a Cobmex or a Workwear Outfitters or any of the fine brands in our industry will have these blanks, but then they also will, if you come back and say, okay, so this is what we're hearing. And this is what we think, you know, is going to solve that problem that we're hearing because we listened with two ears. And so we, you know, and then they say, okay, yeah, let's, let's work on that together. Let's, let's figure out what the 10 things are that need to happen in order for that problem to be solved. And, and I love that. That's a, a vision of how our industry operates. I think about
0: the blanks is that, you know, because, you know, we have an obligation to outfit people regardless of their size and shape, right? So even if you have a program that is a, a buyout or a blank, you know, our partners uh, as on the distribu- distribution service side, you know, our partners in that world understand that you have a responsibility. So if I'm gonna put, a, you know, one of your blue polos blanks into the program that I'm decorating, you have to be able to have the model to be able to say, I've got to make that in X number of XL large and/or X number of extra small. And you know, you're not going to be a successful supplier of blanks um, or stock items into this industry if you do not have that flexibility. Yeah,
1: I'm smiling because. You know, I've been uh, in this industry a long time and I have gotten calls from manufacturers who have said, hey, Rick, we just got we just had an order for 500 blazers from such and such company, and we believe it's for such and such bank, you know, just to randomly make up what I'm not remembering the specifics of. Uh, but, and they you know they say, how do we get more of that?" And I was like, well, congratulations. I'm glad you got that order. but are you prepared then to keep those blazers, in a size run, in that fabric, in that exact color (laughs) for the next three to five years. Because if you're not, (laughs) then I would not recommend pursuing this industry. So
0: (laughs) again, it's a service industry, service of inventory, service of time, service of size. That happens. Yeah, love it. I love
1: it. Wow, James, it was not unexpected, but it was such a pleasure to talk to you today on the Uniformer.
0: Well, like I said, it's definitely an honor and a privilege to be uh, to be asked to uh, you know participate in the podcast. I've listened to some you know really great minds and some uh, really great leaders in the industry. So, I'm-
1: well, we count you among those, James. So, thank you so much.